Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Last Sunday that we were in this text, I finished the message by reflecting on the journey of the Christian life and how that it is not always um, as peaceful as we might think it should be. And I finished that message by talking about the story called Pilgrim's Progress, the, the movement from one world to another. It's a story that, uh, it's a fictional story that is telling like the leaving of one world and going to another world, to the heavenly world. And the main character is Christian, and he, he comes to the cross, and a burden that he's been carrying all of his life leaves him, and he is now set on a new journey, on a new pathway towards the celestial city, uh, kind of parallel to our idea of heaven. And I wanted to continue on that theme this morning just to... Uh, help us to realize that when we come into relationship with God, we, we enter into a, a new way of relating to Him in which He is our King, and yet we live in a world that has another kingdom, and so there's competition. So when we look around the world, we might say, well, it doesn't appear like God is ruling uh, because of all the kinds of things that we see going on around us. But God is ruling through people, not necessarily institutions, and there are other institutions that are at work against the kingdom of heaven. And so, in Pilgrim's Progress, there is a city that's called Vanity Fair. Um, the city, um, you actually maybe you might be surprised to know that the magazine that, has the, that you might see at the grocery store called Vanity Fair is named for this, this city that John Bunyan talked about over 300 years ago in his story called Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, the city, actually, in the storyline, is a city that was founded by the adversary of the king of heaven. And it was called, he was called the Wicked Prince. The Wicked Prince built this city so that when pilgrims were leaving this, the cross and going through a valley of tribulation and going through a wilderness they would have a nice, soft resource for them that would probably take them away from reaching their final destination. 
It was strategically placed and built so that it would sell all kinds of trinkets and all kinds of things to people and try to drop them away from the pursuit of going to the celestial city. Well, as the story goes, Christian, the main character, is on his way to the, to the, um, he's on his way to the celestial city. And as he's going, he's traveling with a man named Faithful. And as they approach the city, in the evening, they realize that they can't get any further, and so they sneak into the gate, and they sleep overnight near the gate. In the morning, they hope that they won't be noticed and that they will be able to just carry on the route that they were going. Unfortunately, in the city, their armor and their white clothing draws attention to them, and people start to swarm around them and start to kind of pick at them and pull them and say, come buy things in our shop, and, and why are you so much in a rush to go towards the celestial city? And they're drawn away, perhaps, in a, to a corner. And Faithful, with, who's with Christian, says this. He says, we don't wish for any of your things. We're going to the celestial city. And that response drew more attention to them. And a crowd came around them. And some of the, some of the police from the city came and arrested Christian and Faithful and drew them away. And I want to leave the story there for a moment and asking this question. <laughs> Would these pilgrims make it out of the city and onto the celestial city or not? Would they leave Vanity Fair or not? And I bring this up as a way of introducing some conflicting elements that are in the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, there's this appeal to our natural desire to flourish, to even even to enjoy life, to like have flourishing as people. And yet, in the same lines, as we move towards the end, we see this, this kind of contrastive statement that it's really a blessed thing to be persecuted, to have people turn on you. And that doesn't make a lot of sense as we hear it. However, Jesus is promising something to us that is deeper than the circumstances that we experience in life. And I want to draw out for us this morning this truth from these words, that the path of true human flourishing lies inside God's kingdom. It doesn't lie outside of God's kingdom. The world tries to communicate to us that we can find happiness in all kinds of things, but true happiness, the kind that turns you uh, joyful on the inside of your soul, in spite of the circumstances, that comes by following the message of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And so, I want you to see some overlap, and I want us to think, maybe a little bit outside of these words, to think about how there is overlap between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. We are like Christian and faithful. We're walking on a journey towards the celestial city, but it's not always easy. We have trouble with family. We have trouble with, with employers. We have trouble with ruling authorities who don't understand some of what we as Christians are to do in this world. And so we have institutions of government that try to rewrite God's moral law and tell us that you know, that gender is just a myth. 
or that marriage doesn't really even matter at all. And everywhere we turn, people tend to tease us with other ways to find happiness. Well, in these verses, Jesus is saying that true happiness, there's a blessing for those who, who within their souls recognize that they need a heavenly father because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But there's two kingdoms at work. And it brings us to realize that there are two kingdoms in competition. And at sometimes it appears as though this kingdom of the world is winning. And it appears at times when our souls are heavy and it's faltering and darkness seems very attractive, we are often wondering who really is in charge. Well, we have to be honest about the world that we live in. We can't just look around and say, well, there's, there's only good and sunshine and roses everywhere we turn. We have to be honest about what's going on in the world around us. That there is a wicked prince who has a kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A wicked prince has a kingdom. If you were to read the story of Pilgrim's Progress, there is a character whose name is Beelzebub. Maybe you've heard of the name Beelzebub before. Beelzebub is a, it's a two-part word that has two meanings in it. Beel uh, means the highest, the highest authority. And Zebub is uh, a reference to a fly. And so this combination of words is a reference to a Canaanite god and deity in the Old Testament, and it became associated with a name for Satan. But it, what it really represents is basically the supreme hated authority or ruler, the Lord of the Flies, if maybe you've heard of that expression. That's where this, this comes from, Beelzebub. And if you can, can, can imagine the most frustrating experience of having flies on you, it's kind of like this irritable, oppressive feeling. And the Canaanite culture that, that existed hundreds of years ago actually worshipped this God, which is embodied by Satan himself. And so he often is like a reference that's seen in the New Testament to, to communicate um, this, this description of Satan and his kingdom. And the wicked, king's, the wicked prince's kingdom is, is such that he, he uses people and influences their desires to move in directions that he would want them to move in. For example... During the Christmas season, we typically read in Matthew chapter 2 about King Herod who ordered the execution of little babies in and around Bethlehem. He was a jealous king, and he was jealous and he was frightened that this little baby would grow up and take his place or his son's place on the throne. Well, Beelzebub, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, uses 
people's dispositions towards jealousy and frustration and anger and channels people who are in authority to carry out deeds that affect other people. And so it's important for us to recognize that there is a wicked prince who is ruling in this world. And while we look at people around us, we don't see them as the enemy. We actually recognize that people, there's someone behind people that is the true enemy. And we ought to have this awareness that the wicked prince does have a kingdom and he truly did offer to Jesus in the wilderness. He said, if you bow and worship me, then I will give you all of these kingdoms. The wicked prince has blinded so many people and many people follow the prince of the power of the air. And so we ought to, when we look at the world, recognize that there is satanic ability to influence world leaders even. So when we look at world leaders like Herod or Xi Jinping, Biden, Trudeau, Johnson, or anyone else who is in a position of authority, we need to recognize and pray for them that they be not influenced by the prince of the power of the air. And we need to recognize that there is the potential for them to do things that could affect the world in which we live in. But this should not cause us to be in despair. Yes, there is overlap of kingdoms. And there is a, another king who is even in charge of lesser kings. And in the Pilgrim's Progress, this, this, this king was called the Prince of the Pilgrims. The prince of the pilgrims, those who are wandering through, those who are going through on their way to the celestial city. The object of our prince, Jesus, is not to accumulate influence and not to accumulate power. I know that when we look back on our history in America, we will often look back with fondness at earlier time periods where Christianity seemed to have a much greater influence on our society. But that is not the main goal of our prince. His main goal is to draw pilgrims out of this world and into his kingdom. And so it's important for us to understand that this runs contrary to the wisdom of the world in which we, we want to, if we could just get enough representation in Washington, then we could have something. Well, that may not be a bad thing overall. However, it's not the primary thing that God is concerned about. He is concerned about gathering people and leading them into his future kingdom. You see, the symbol of the cross is a symbol of weakness. That the Savior of the world would humble himself and let himself be crucified. That's the emblem. It's not about power. It's about humility and mercy and mourning and hungering and thirsting after righteousness and being merciful, purity of heart, being a peacemaker. These things are not power grabs at all. These are the values of the true prince who puts within hearts the happiness and joy that can lead them through all kinds of circumstances. 
And so the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us merciful and to live out kingdom values. See, Satan has no ability to overcome the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a true blessing. Satan may organize government rulers to oppress congregational worship, threaten people, warn them to stay home, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but, the, but the prince of this, the power of this air cannot take the Holy Spirit out of individual people who have been born again. And that is a tremendous encouragement to us that whatever persecution might come our way, the kingdom of God will be made visible one day. Revelation 11 verse 15 says this, looking to the future in which John saw this image, this vision of an angel blowing his trumpet. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So when we walk around this world, there is overlapping of kingdoms. So you see people who exercise what they think is power and authority. But every once in a while, you run into people, and it's like there's a glitch in the system. There's people who are going in the opposite direction. There are people who, who are like fish swimming against the current, and yet in their swimming, they're, what are they doing? They're being merciful. They're being peacemakers. They're demonstrating another world entering into this dark world. It's kind of like, I know it's very popular right now to talk about what's called the metaverse. Now, if you're into Marvel or you're into some of these science fiction type of uh, programs, our kids love it and I'll get critiqued afterwards because I won't tell it just right. However, if you've ever seen WandaVision, this, this, this uh, superhero creates a world in which she can control all the circumstances and she's trying to deal with her anxiety and her grief. And every once in a while, there'll be people from the real world that will enter. They're like glitches in her system. And when we think about the overlapping of the prince of the power of this world, and you see people glitching in, what you're seeing is the king and his authority through pilgrims going towards the celestial city. We live in a world that is manufactured and manufacturing happiness or the appearance of. But every once in a while, you'll meet people who have a genuine happiness within their souls. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So, what we're seeing, what I, what I see is that Jesus is speaking into people's hearts and lives and saying, look, this is the true kingdom. I want to kind of set this up a little bit as, as overlapping kingdoms now, but I want you to see, and I'm going to go more to the text right now, this immediate text, and we're going to see the progression of how it's organized a little bit and see some of the overlap and progression of ideas as Jesus teaches these, that there is a progression. And uh, notice that in verse 3, um, there is 
um, kind of like a parenthesis. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then down towards the end of this first group of eight verses, in verse 10, he repeats himself. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he sets up like parentheses and says that these are, these are, these are virtues that are really important to me and my kingdom. And so it's important for you to catch these and have them within you. And it, it gives us a clear, like, inside and outside. A parenthesis. For theirs is the kingdom of God. So if you don't have these virtues growing inside of you, then you're not inside his kingdom. There's an inside and outside. And it's kind of like Jesus uses other analogies in his sermon. In fact, when we get eventually to chapter 7, we're going to see Jesus talk about the narrow road that leads to life. But the broad road leads to destruction. So you, you need to be inside of this kingdom and authority. And so it's remarkable that uh, as Jesus progresses, he, in the first five verses, we, we saw this last time we were together, he talks about different passive virtues that you need to have internally and be prepared so that you can receive the kingdom. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst. And there is an invitation, there is an invitation to flourish, but these have to be embraced. You have to embrace Christ's kingdom by faith. So if you have a poverty in your heart of spirit, how do, you, how do you know that you will have the kingdom of God? You have to, by faith, receive it. And if you mourn over your sin, then you're going to receive comfort from the Holy Spirit. And if you are not thinking a lot of yourself, you're meek, you're actually one day going to receive an inheritance of the earth you will have the opportunity to rule. And in verse um, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You, you, you know internally that you're, you're weak. You're not, you're not holy. And you're, you're, if you're driven in hunger to, to want it, then you're going to receive it. You're going to have satisfaction in time. And so there is an invitation, an opportunity to flourish here, there's an, op uh, there's an offer, excuse me, of, of this righteousness. Look at, it says in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is a, a direct offer here. But then something switches, there's progression, there's movement, and when you get into the last set of Beatitudes, verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. So if you're hungry for it, you'll receive it, but be careful what you ask for, because you may potentially be persecuted because you have it. And that is counterintuitive to the way we would think, that that would be an invitation to flourishing. But yet there is an offer to receive righteousness, there is an offer, though, to flourish here, an opportunity 
so that if you are a believer and you are kind of like from another world and you're glitching into this world and people start to see that you're different, that you don't oppress people around you, that you're trying your best to meet people where they're at, you're a peacemaker, it's going to offend people. And the prince of the power of the air will send people into your life to obstruct you along your journey because you will be apparently different than others. And then you will be the recipient of persecution because you're starting to put into place these righteous virtues. There's a really interesting progression here, and then we're going to move into the last point. I want you to see in verse 11, he says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And in the next slide, if uh, Noah, you could move that slide forward, please. I want you to be able to see, it's harder to read in the English because we don't have we don't have a plural you anymore. Unless you live in the South Carolina or South and, say, and you say y'all. That's a group of yous. But in the, in the English that we're reading, it's harder to see it. But it's important for us to catch it. He says, blessed are you, singular. So there's an invitation to you, singular. When others revile you. Oh, so I'm not alone? Yes, you're not alone. And they persecute you. Don't think that you're alone. And they utter all kinds of evil against you. This has been done throughout time. You're a part of something larger than yourself. You're part of a community of people who are running in a different direction. And it's important to understand and see the shift because there is this offer of flourishing and, and people want that. But then there's a shift and says, well, you need to then make the decision to, to accept the righteousness of God, which you don't have by faith, and receive the Holy Spirit into your life. And when you personally do that, you're going to find yourself in a community that may be oppressed and receive persecution. And there is an overlap here between, as you will, a progression between a general offer to a specific invitation. And so this is where most people get off the train. They say, well, that early stuff that Jesus talked about sounded really good. Sounds like I want to find my best life now. Like I want to like, experience life to the fullest. But what Jesus is talking about sounds counterproductive. It sounds not really warm and fuzzy. Persecution, I didn't sign up for that. And a lot of people get off the train. And so Jesus says, no, don't, don't get off the train. Keep going to the last point. Keep going to the celestial kingdom. Keep going and don't worry about what's coming upon you. And so there's an overlap. I, I, he's, he's on the one hand offering righteousness. On the other hand, he's offering us persecution. And those don't seem very warm. But I want you to see some of the, the truths now. We're going to look at this progression now in the last four Beatitudes um, in verse 7. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's take the first of these. There is a promise by God to bless those who are merciful. The word mercy is much broader than receiving forgiveness for one's sins before God. It's more broad than simply forgiving your neighbor who offends you. It is, it is a word that, that has the idea of having a misery within your heart that extends to other people. What do I mean? It's the idea of looking at other people and seeing the misery that they are in and letting their misery affect your heart and have compassion for them. Jesus is saying that God causes a person to flourish who has a vision for the world around them that is compassionate. Why is that? It's because they have received compassion themselves. Now, it says in our English translation, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. For. So that sometimes that sounds like a result. Like, if I am merciful, then I will get mercy. But that's not what this is meaning. It's saying it's the, that the mercy, it's causal. Because you have received mercy, this person gives mercy. And that's the idea. And so there is an it is important to understand that salvation is unmerited favor. And so we don't walk around looking at people like, you know, you guys are you, <laughs> in an ungracious and unmerciful approach. You know, we don't, we don't not love people. And what, what, what Jesus is saying is that those who are unmerciful and unforgiving demonstrate that they've never received mercy in the first place. They don't get it. They don't understand the poverty of their own heart. They don't understand. They don't mourn over sin. They're not meek. They're proud. And so what Jesus is saying here, that there's going to be a shift so that you then are merciful to others around you. The second of these, of these Beatitudes um, in verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart. Uh, this, has been, this has been interpreted a couple of different directions. Um, and I lean towards this as representative of a purity of focus of the heart. The idea of a faith that's not divided. Um, and that will manifest itself in purity and, and holy living. But I see this because later in this sermon, Jesus will talk about the eye having, if it's healthy, it will have a clear focus. It won't be divided to worship money. It will be singular and focused to worship God as the supreme, supreme being. And so what I see in here is that the person who has a faith that is 
focused, it's from the heart, it's focused on God, they're going to see God. And it's important for us to recognize the singular commitment that's being communicated here. And it's going to create good works in our community. Yes, it's going to do that. And uh, a sincerity like uh, Christian and faithful as they're going through Vanity Fair, people come around them and say, why don't you just stay here and enjoy yourself for a little while? And they say, no, no, we, we can see where we're going and we've got to keep moving towards the celestial city. And so it's a focus of the heart. The third beatitude in verse 9, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now the word peace by itself in our English is um, a bit small in its meaning. Because the word that is here is a bit broader. It has the idea of a person who makes effort in all the relationships to create peace. This is a, a characteristic of a person who is a peacemaker. That's, that's, that's how they're known. They don't, they don't go through the world trying to till up the soil and, and stir the pot wherever they go. This is a, this is a person who's trying to, to create good relationships around them. I think sometimes we as Christians get confused on this point because we think, well, you know, God does tell us to live at peace with all people, that we, we, we have to be careful about the kinds of things that we say. Well, there's certainly a truth to being careful about what we, how we say things, but we should never compromise the truth about uh, the Word of God. We have to communicate the love of God to people and help them appreciate that we're trying to be faithful to God. Our world around us wants to suppress the truth about gender. They want to suppress the truth about marriage. But we can't look at people as enemies. We need to look at them as people who need the truth and to love them and bring them to a place of understanding. The last of these, God blesses the persecuted, verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. This is, again, the very ironic statement. Very ironic. <laughs> because this is not what we would consider to be a place of flourishing, but yet Jesus says that it is. Those who are a part of God's kingdom will be in time viewed as troublemakers in this world. You'll be shunned from expressing a point of view in the workplace, and you'll be assumed to be on the wrong side of history. And it's important for Christians to recognize this reality and not run away from it, but to be courageous in their effort to follow God from the heart. A Puritan, Thomas Watson, from a couple of hundred years ago, lived in a time period that was very, very difficult for Christians to stand for truth. He said this, though they be never so meek 
and merciful, pure in heart, their piety will not shield them from sufferings. They must hang their harp from the willows and take the cross. The way to heaven is by thorns and blood. Set it down as a maxim that if you follow Christ, you must see the swords and the staves. Put the cross in your creed. And so what this, he's this, this wisdom from the past is telling us is that we have to expect and realize that the cross is ours also to carry. As Christians, we don't pick up the harp in this world. That's for a future day. After the day of judgment, there will be a reversal. There will be a reversal of all the wrongs, and the wrongs will be made right again. And so, as we work through this, Jesus is saying, look, you, you, you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, you want to find true flourishing, but it lies inside my kingdom. It lies in following me. Pick up your cross. Be willing to suffer for righteousness. I promised that I would come back to Christian and faithful who are in Vanity Fair. What happened to them? Well, the whole town had gathered around them. A ruckus appeared like a riot was going on. And so the police were sent in and they arrested them and brought them to the judge and they put them in a cage actually in the middle of town so that they could be a spectacle for others to see and they would lead them out like like animals to the to the fairgrounds where all the wares were being sold and they were paraded before other people and they were mocked and look at these people they don't go along with the rest of us and day after day that occurred and then finally they were arraigned before a judge the judge's name was hate good and he was a servant of the wicked prince he charged them for commotions and divisions in the town. And because they owned the most dangerous opinions, and they were in contempt of the prince who was ruling in that jurisdiction, and the jury found them worthy of death. Well, Faithful was the first to go out before the crowd. He was drawn out, he was beaten, he was lanced with knives, he was stoned. And then he was burnt at the stake. But as for Christian, God mercifully allowed him a reprieve. Just like, like Paul being released from prison, there was a confusion in the town and he began to be overlooked and gradually they forgot why that he was even imprisoned and they let him go. And as he journeyed on towards the celestial city, he said this, Christian said this, in light of losing his friend faithful, he said, but he that overrules all things, having the power of the rage in his own hand, so rotted about that Christian for that time escaped and he went his way. And this is what Christian sang as he went. He said this, well, faithful, thou hast faithfully professed. Noah, could you turn the slide, please? I think it's back. I think there should be a slide with the verse. No? Okay. And as he went about singing, this is what he said. Well, faithful, thou hast faithfully professed 
unto thy Lord, with him thou shalt be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, faithful, sing, and let thy name survive. For though they kill thee, thou art yet alive. So did faithful find the flourishing for which Jesus promised? Yes, he did. In fact, in Christian's song, he noted that he was blessed. He had truly found the purpose for which he'd been created, and he has the hope of eternal life and the hope that one day he will be replanted on this earth when Christ comes to rule and reign. This is our Christian hope. This is the pathway. We have overlapping kingdoms. We're running against the, the flow. We're seeing glitches of one kingdom transference into another. What kingdom are you a part of? Are you a king, part of the kingdom of this world? Do you truly know whether or not within your heart that you have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? He came and he offered himself. There is no strings attached. He gives his grace freely and he desires all who would be hungry and thirsty to come.